بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولا Welcome everybody to the Safina Society Nothing But Facts live stream And today I had uh, some, some We have some news at Safina Society okay. We fired someone And we hired someone in his place You have any guess who we fired? I actually fired myself from everything to do with audio and video because there's too much funneling and it's too slow, right? Everything is too slow. So I fired myself and we hired a brother who is a hipster dude. Is, is, I don't know if it's valid to call him that. He's cool. I don't know what the terms are these days, right? So he's a cool dude. You look at him from top to bottom. He's stylish and fashionable, and he's really good at doing videos. And he loves us, too. I actually care more for the momentum of the guy's emotion than anything else, right? I want to feel the guy like likes us. So he loves us, and he's coming, inshallah, and he's going to do all the videos from now on. Because um, that's what you need to, that's how you need to operate. You need to have someone, you have to trust in the experts that you have. Now this uh, this drilling, can you guys hear this? Moab says it's the same title out of last week. Well, I guess maybe it's the same title, but okay. Okay, so now let's look at this. Yusuf Ibn Tashfin becomes the spearhead of the Murabitun, and he leads the Murabitun to become. Whoa just happened here he leads the murabitun to becoming the most important and the strongest dawla of islam stronger than the abbasid khalifa all of this is in his his original period of work which is in morocco itself and they're they are from the amazigh people so there are two tribes okay they are both from the amazigh people the Amazigh people are also known as the Tuareg people. Okay? And these people are, are called by the Romans the Berbers. And this is a name that they don't like because it means they're barbaric. Any people that came in and they lived a simpler life and they tried to fight back the Romans, the Romans found some name for them, right? So the Berbers comes from the word barbaric. Okay? Their name is not Berbers, their name is Amazigh. And the Amazigh people, they entered Islam during the Umayyad Khilafah. And the Umayyads were sending down teachers and scholars, etc. And they were teaching them Islam. When the Umayyads collapsed and the party kings started, the, all the Islamic West, Andalus and the Islamic countries, uh, uh, the, uh, the Moroccan nations, all broke up. When this happened, they started to collapse back into their old ways. They had no teachers. Like, we imagine that everything pre-modern, like, there's shiuch everywhere, and awliya everywhere. Isn't that what we imagine? That wasn't the case. That may have been case in, the case in some cities, right? But it wasn't the case. And even until the 50s, like, my mom told me, she did not ever get one lesson of education on fiqh 
She did not know what the, that there's things that are fard and things that are sunnah. She never knew this concept in her entire life in Egypt. And she lived in Cairo, where you could probably take a long walk to Jam al-Azhar. So there are people living right in the capital, in the heart of, this, of the Islamic countries, that never receive lessons. Basics. And they tell me, oh, hijab, we thought is just something that the old women wear because their hair is not as pretty anymore. That's what they thought, like an old traditional custom. I had other people, Egyptians, tell me they really never knew the difference between Islamic history and Pharaonic history. It's like all a blur to them. Okay? A woman from Damascus, Syria, she's a mathematician. She came up and in her master's degree, had only heard that there was a man named Muhammad and that he was like a conqueror. That's what she thought. I didn't know anything about him. Until she heard a woman from, uh, uh, there's, a, there's like a, a women's group in Morocco, in, in Syria. There were hardcore preachers, right? And they would memorize Quran, they would study Shafi'i fiqh, and they had their own views on how women could advance in the deen. And one of these women was given a little talk at, at a table, um, at the cafe, at the university. So she sat there at the cafe in the university, and she heard the description of this conqueror that she imagined, Muhammad. She didn't realize this is Sayyid al-Kawnayn, the prophet, the messenger of Allah, and he has all these attributes, and we know this much of his history. She felt the shock of her life. And she said, I was sitting in that gathering with sleeveless shirt, mini skirt, here I'm in a, I'm in a, a master's or PhD in math at the university, right? Never having heard one sentence about the Prophet, peace be upon him, in the city of Damascus. So it shouldn't be a surprise, and no one should, we should get out of our imagination that in the, just like pre-modern times, every shiuch everywhere and salahin everywhere. No, people lived their entire lives never having been taught anything. So the reach for, the, for the, 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 the deen to reach people was not something that was taken for granted. So the Amazigh started to completely go backwards into their pagan ways until there was one righteous man from the Lamtuna tribe. And the Lamtuna tribe is one of the massive tribes. There's two massive tribes, the Lamtuna and the Masmuda. And these tribes are the ones that, gave, that received Islam first and then revived it later on. So the Lamtuna, this one man from the Lamtuna, he goes up to the cities, one of the major cities and the colleges, said, send us a sheikh, please. That's, that's when they send Abdullah bin Yasin. Abdullah bin Yasin, you have to know, is the legend. He's a legend. Okay, Abdullah bin Yasin, if your name is Yasin, name your kid Abdullah so he can become Abdullah bin Yasin. He's a legend. Okay, He's a Zahid. He, at this point in his life, he, hasn't, he doesn't even know who he is in the sense of what he's going to become. There are no, there's nothing pointing to the fact that he's going to become who he became. Nothing is pointing to that fact. And there are moments in history that look like every other moment in time. Okay? Every other moment in time. But it's not. It's a moment that's going to completely transform the history of these people. And the sending of Abdullah bin Yasin, who is nothing other than just a pious faqih. That's all he is. Just a pious faqih. 
But when he gets put into the position and he gets thrown into the jungle, his true colors of his true his um, qualities come out that he becomes an amazing preacher. He sees threats, he answers them right away. He becomes a military leader, right? He be- and back in the day, that's fathomable. When military skills are not, it don't take 50 years to learn, right? In those days, you ride a horse, you shoot an arrow, you swing a sword, you hold up a shield. It's done with, right? You learn this in one year. Strategy, not the diff- most hardest thing in the world. All that stuff. Okay. Tenweer, that is, the, is that the chair? Is that uh, your chair, Ryan, or is that the drilling that's going on? Yeah, that, yeah, Tenweer, that is the drilling. That's the drilling going on. Okay, mashallah. Sheikh Omar Popel is coming this for the, for, for the weekend, October 7, 8, 9. So we need to see him. Yeah, we'll get him a spot and we'll get all his shabab a spot. So all the shabab has stayed downstairs, right? They're just shabab. You just sleep on the floor, right? You're getting a hotel room. Like the sheikh, he's married, he's been used to sleeping in a bed. We'll get him a hotel room. You guys, shabab, you take the, the, the cold, wet floor and you sleep on that. Huh? My woman. You're lucky that Ryan him up the floor. You pay extra for that. Okay, so <laughs> that's like when you go into a house and there's a baby. Nobody touch this organic milk. This is for the baby. So what's for us? Like all the rotten old cheap <laughs> milk with all the chemicals. That's for you people. So here we go with Abdullah bin Yassin gets there. He transforms. He realized like there's political threats. There is Jahl in the Deen, and he just gets to work and becomes a legend. So, whereas in the East, you had Nuruddin Zenki was king. Whoa. A bug of some sorts. There, I spoke about these bugs. I got one. Uh, desire for your brother what you desire for your brother. That was a nasty bug, whatever that was. You guys hear that? Hit the mic. Did that noise come through? So, you see how quick the feedback loop is? All right, brothers, inshallah, maybe we guys, some of these sadaheen, we're going to get you a nice place to sleep. All right? We will make sure that you're comfortable and happy with us. Right? I got that feedback loop quick. There were the brothers like that in, uh, in, a, uh, uh, in the dumps. We'll give you a bug real quick. So, after Abdullah bin Yasin, he starts uh, unifying clans and tribes he starts preaching he sends his students to preach right and they start actually unifying a little state and before there's just tribes living around now it's like a state right and then Abu Bakr ibn Ibrahim leads the state and then they start calling themselves the Murabitun and then after a while the young second generation is rising up Yusuf ibn Tashafin, we call it Tashfin in the East, but they call it Tashafin. Okay, they, they pronounce it Tashafin. Yusuf ibn Tashafin is like Salahuddin, he's raised under the, ba- the shade of this renewal of deen. That's what he's raised upon. He's ready to go. And Abu Bakr ibn uh, Ibrahim, he dies, or, or he 
he he's getting older, so he assigns Yusuf and Teshfin to rule to, to manage the north while he takes care of the south. All right. When he goes and visits him back, okay, uh, up north, he sees that he's completely realigned the entire state. Right? He's completely realigned everything. And he's so impressed, he said, you need to be the leader of the whole Murabitun. He retires to the south, he manages the south, and Yusuf ibn Tashafin becomes the leader. Yusuf ibn Tashafin then continues now, proceeds now to create a new capital. That's what he realizes. And they start, this is unthinkable, because these are like some Amazigh tribes from the Niger River right, off the coast of the Niger River. These are the tribes. These are not the respected elites of the cities. And they're starting now to do the unthinkable. They're taking over cities. The big cities of Morocco are being taken over. And one after another after another, some of them join and some of them are just, it's a takeover. When he does this, all right, Yusuf ibn Tashafin sets up his own city, which is Marrakesh. And that's where the city of Marrakesh comes. It's the Marabout capital. Okay? The Murabitun capital. By this point, he's around 70 years old. Yusuf ibn Tashfin, it takes him that long, like an entire lifetime, to conquer the entirety of Al-Maghrib. Right? And from North Morocco, all to the great city of Fez, to the great cities that exists in Morocco all the way down to the tip, tip of the Niger River is Murabitun land. And he puts in the Madiki scholars. And this is the era in which the Madiki madhab further takes root because all the scholars, they're originally Madiki, but this time, like, it continues now. All right. He continues it. And he, he receives news. After this, what's the news that he receives? He receives the news from a group of kings, all right? Uh, he receives the news of a group of kings from Andalus. So what is the status of Andalus? The Umayyads are gone. And who do they bring in place? Nobody. So Andalus divides up into 42 kingdoms. Every little town has its own king. And he names himself, right? The protected from Allah, the victor, all that. They give themselves names. 42 kings. Meanwhile, the Christians, one king. Alfonso VI. There are 10 Alfonsos. All of them, crusaders. Alfonso VI, he is the most successful crusader up until this point, And he conquers... What was the capital of the biggest city at the time was not Cordoba anymore. It was Toledo, which the Arabs called Tolaitida. It's right in the middle, but more to the south of Spain. He conquers it. Not only does he conquer it, he starts charging, charging Muslims a reverse jizya. And the Muslims are paying a reverse jizya to Alfonso VI. Okay? He starts paying this, they start paying the jizya. These kings come together and realize, do we want to lose your kingdoms? We need help because Alfonso is going to take over everything. They send a letter to whom? They send a letter to Yusuf ibn Tashfin. Come up, help us. 
Okay? Come up and help us. He comes up with about three, four, five thousand soldiers, maybe probably a lot more. Okay. And he, but he leaves, he comes up with a lot more, but he's going to eventually leave and leave 3,000 soldiers there. So he comes up and he faces off with Alfonso. Alfonso sends him a letter. Alfonso sends him a letter, says, I have written to the Pope of Rome who is sending me double the amount of enforcements that I already have from the Italians and the French. Okay? So I suggest that we meet at the negotiation table. Okay? And there, they, so the Spanish crusaders, the French crusaders, and the Italian crusaders. So double the amount. That means the amount is going to be triple now. Because if double is coming, you know, 2x plus x, you get 3x. All right? What does he send him? Right? He takes an empty piece of paper and he writes on the back, Setara ma yakun. Or, ma yakunu tarahu. Which means, whatever's going to happen, you're going to see it. That's it. And this is not a man who's do, who, who, who does words. I'm telling you, didn't I, I, I always say here, I hate words. It's all talk. Talk, 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 talk. Like all this Leicester stuff that was going on in, in, in Leicester. All a bunch of talk. And what those brothers did the other day was the right thing, which is to get about 50, 60, 70 big brothers, right? And just walk around the streets. Whoever wants to pick a fight, let's just bring it. We're going to give you a visual here. Not stand at the masjid and stand next to the Hindu leader. And we have always had a diverse community. Like how clueless are some people? I have to ask this question, and I really feel bad for people, right? I really feel bad for you. Do you actually think this has an effect? These foolish statements. Every time there is a uh, uh, like a, a bombing or whatever after nine eleven, the Muslims release a statement: "We are against violence." Blah blah. What kind of stupidity are these? Are these statements are useless, right? Same thing, like what we talked about yesterday. Yesterday, when we talked about, like, what happens if your daughter gets raped, right? Well, what are you going to... Oh, go to the authorities. Authorities? I need to see the guy in pain. No other... The conviction is not enough, right? There's no death penalty. There are no lashes. So he's never going to experience pain. He's going to go in, hang out with his fellow uh, 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 criminals, eat three meals a day... Breathe, have air condition, and sleep. How is that acceptable? Okay? So we need, right, to ensure that he feels some pain in his body. Right? That will forever connect the fact that I did X and, and I felt pain. Okay? So these people, no, Al-Murabit is like, no, 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 I'm not dumb. I'm not going to do it the way some fools do it. It's going to be very discreet. This is going to be the only evidence against me. Well, I pray it never have to do it. And first of all, it's all talk until it happens. Then we'll see whether you're going to talk or you're going to do it. But I guarantee you, if you ever have to do anything bold, keep it to yourself. Because if Allah loves you, he surrounds you with reasonable people. Reasonable people are a problem sometimes. They talk reason to you. And sometimes that's not what gets the job done. 
right? A reaction. And instinct is what gets the job done. Reasonable people, when push comes to shove, sometimes you don't want them around. In the long term, you want them around, right? To go long in life, you need them around. But sometimes in the short term, the reasonable people, I I don't tell them what I'm going to do. Because they're going to talk reason to me, right? And and that's and that's always dangerous. If you want to execute something quickly and and something bold, so Yusuf and Teshfin goes up, and he receives this letter. What were we saying? I don't even know what we were saying. But we get up there. Is that he gets the the message? He goes up there, Yusuf and Teshfin, and he writes this letter back to Alfonso. Whatever's going to happen, you're going to see it. Oh, so Alfonso knows now he's not dealing with a fool. He's dealing with someone who knows real life. In real life, nothing matters but action. The action that happens, that's all that matters. All this yip-yap and this negotiation and talk. Anytime I see these Palestinians go to have a talk with Israel, are you some, how, Israel's smart. They chose the dumbest guy. The dumbest guy who was willing to have these talks. There's no talks with you, okay? I'm not having no talks with you, all right? So, um, now, Yusuf and Teshfin faces off with Alfonso. What does Alfonso do? Uh, they have a, a tough battle. And this is the famous battle of Azalaka, right? Azalaka. If you should make a movie about this, you should do it, right? Azalaka. And in this battle, it's, subhanAllah, it's like the, the usual thing that the way that battles are won in the old days, where you lure them in, but you have a group of soldiers on the back, and then they come in and they smash them from the back. They sandwich them from the back. Okay, so this is like, it's like the layup of the NBA in war. Okay, or in football, it's like winning by running the ball. It's like the, the number one strategy in, in the old wars was to be able to, um, to lure people in, okay, and then Im- make them imagine that they're winning. But you intentionally backed up. And while intentionally backing up, you then have a group of people come from the back. So many battles have been won by this. Now you understand, okay, that the Prophet ﷺ told Ashab Uhud, the people of the Mount Uhud, never leave your post. Because in the old-fashioned wars, you don't have eyes on who's where, right? And they would come from the back. So that's how he won the Battle of Zalaqa. And then he got the council together. He brought all the 42 kings together and him. Okay? And, they, and he said, I'm leaving you now with 3,000 soldiers. And he received some terrible news which is that his second-in-command, his son, has passed away in Morocco, in Marrakesh. So he said, I leave you these, and I have to leave, but you are the council now to rule over this land. But while he was there, he stayed a little bit longer before he left. And he ruled over this council. Okay? But what he realized is that they started plotting against him. The 42 started plotting against him. And then he realized that, hold on a second, there are amongst these 42, 
there are some of them having secret meetings with Alfonso. So he kicked Alfonso out. He pushed Alfonso way back, right? But some of them are having secret meetings with Alfonso and saying, listen, he's going to leave. Yusuf is, Ben Tashfin is going to leave. We're going to come back, right? Let's make a deal. So they will sell their deen and sell their people and work with Alfonso after all of what Alfonso VI had done. So Yusuf and Tashfin, he leaves, but he, he sees this khiana, this treachery first. He sees that first. He witnesses it first. Okay. And now he knows exactly who he's dealing with amongst the Muslims, right? And he realizes that these party kings, they're called, Muluk al-Tawa'if, they're worse than the Crusaders because they're duplicitous. The Crusader is telling you, I, I want to kill you, right? Just like the Republican. You know these Republicans who are these right-wing types. They tell you, they're open. Some bad groups, evil groups, are, have the good quality of being honest. Like in Islamic history, we say that the, uh, the, the good quality the good quality of the Kharijites is that they're the most honest of the heretics. They don't lie, right? They don't lie. And that's true. They don't lie. They tell the truth, right? And others, uh, other, other heretical groups have good qualities, right? So every good heretical group has a quality. And from these kuffar, the crusaders tell you, you know that they want to kill you and they want to fight you and take, your, take back the land, but from these duplicitous party kings, they're worse because you never know which way they're going to side. Now listen to this. He leaves. He goes back tents to Morocco. He's done with Andalus. He went up there. He defended. He pushed back Alfonso VI. He left. He never thought he's going to come back. They screwed it up so badly, the party kings, that Al-Baji, Imam al-Baji, and many other notable imams wrote to him and issued fatwa that the righteous khalifa to whom everyone owes bay'ah is Yusuf bin Tashfin and that it is binding by sharia for Yusuf bin Tashfin to go up and cancel the rule and the authority of all of these party kings and finish them, and any Muslim who stands in his way, his blood is halal, because he's a traitor. So Yusuf bin Tashfin gets not the green light, the command, from the ulama of Morocco, to go, and from uh, ulama of Andalus, to go and conquer his, the, the Muslim kings. You have off with their head, dynamite them all. They're, we're done with them. They've shown their colors. So he gets there and he's known as Al Khalifa Al Rashid Al Sadis because he came before Salahuddin. He is known as the sixth rightly guided caliph. Omar ibn Abdul Aziz being the fifth. Now, although we did Salahuddin and Nuruddin first, Nuruddin was the fifth. He's the sixth. Salahuddin came after. Okay. So. He's also known as Al-Malik Al-Mujab, the king whose, whose dua is answered. People don't realize when the lands of Islam 
had any sense, semblance of order, the kings were the most righteous people. And we can't imagine, what it, how, how is a king righteous? Because these kings are supposed to be all corrupt. Now, most of them are. Most of them cannot handle the, 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 the test of luxury. He was a Zahid. It was said of him, he never ate butter. He never ate buttery food. Right? And Ibn Khaldun, okay, uh, Ibn Khaldun is not, uh, he, he has a great theory that corruption always begins with the stomach. This is so important. If you want to roll yourself back to the charactered people, the people who build societies and cities and civilizations, and they renew religion, if you want to roll that back, attack your stomach. Attack it with fasting. Attack it with... That's why I technically don't even mind any of these diets except I, I mind the attitude that, that these people take. Any diet where you decrease your food, in theory, I don't mind it, but the problem is, except vegetarians and vegans, because of their principles. But we, we don't accept that. You're eating meat whether you like it or not. At least once a year for aid. Because you can't tell me that it's uh, immoral to slaughter an animal. Okay? You'll be overrun by these animals in your own homes if you don't eat them. Okay? So, but point being is that Aside from people's attitudes when they say, hey, I'm coming over, but I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this, and now I have to go to a special aisle and pay triple and then make you some bizarre odd food, uh, heck with the invitation. <laughs> go, I'll invite somebody else, right? Forget this invitation that's become a headache, right? That is makruh to do to people. This is not adab of a Muslim to do to people that you're, uh, I invite you over, and you say, okay, I'm on this diet, and I'm on this diet, and I'm on this diet, and I'm on this diet. And now I find myself spending five hours, right, to try to make you food which is not even edible, right? Like, I can't even eat the leftovers of this. To, to, to at least console myself as a consolation, when he leaves, I'll have the leftovers, right? Because that's the consolation when you have one of these big invitations, and you get a nice fat receipt. Well, at least we'll eat the leftovers, right? No. Eating grass and bird food and seeds, these people. So, but aside from that aspect of things, the rude aspect of things, uh, to decrease your food is always good. Any decrease of food is good. And Ibn Khaldun writes that when he looked at when does society get corrupted, he always found the same thing. When the elites are indulging in food. Forget haram. The indulgence leads to another indulgence, to another indulgence, to another indulgence, right? Into complete corruption. So he was someone who was known as Al-Mujabid Da'wah Al-Zahid. And that he only, he never wore the fine cloths of the kings. He was proving a point. Why is he Mujabid Da'wah? The first time they went up to Andalus. And he thought, it looks like I'm, a, I'm conquering these people. I don't want to conquer them. I just want to fight back the Christians. Now, the, sh the, the ship ride, the boat ride from Morocco to Andalus is very short. It's a little tiny strait called Jabal Tariq, which we now call Gibraltar. Okay? It's, it's the um, anglicized version of the Arabic phrase Jabal Tariq. And that is based on Tariq ibn Ziyad, the second generation or third generation Muslim. I can't remember if he's a Tabi or a Tabi Tabi. Who went there and famously arrived 
and burnt all the ships behind him and told his soldiers, after today we are either conquerors or we're martyrs. This is a famous story. Allah knows how true it is, but it's a famous story. And even many uh, non-Muslims have transmitted that in their histories, that he did that. He burnt all the trust. Tariq ibn Ziyad. So it's called Jabal Tariq. In that small bit, a massive uh, storm occurred in which they thought that they would all capsize and they would all drown. And they saw their entire, they saw their king walk up to the top of the ship, face the Qibla, and raise his hands up in the air in ibtihal. When you raise your hands up like this, it's called ibtihal. Okay? And that is the most intensive dua. And it is said that al-ibtihal, Laylatul Jum'ah, ibtihal, on the night of Jum'ah, if, if that dua is sincere, is always answered. In the last third of the night. Ibtihal, if it's sincere. And you're, when you're doing ibtihad, you are weeping. You are just in a complete state of desperation. They watch their king while everyone's holding on to ropes, to masts, to pieces of the ship. They watch their king stand with nothing but his hands up like this. That's a king. That's a leader. The one who takes the brunt of it right in his own face. And he's 70 years old when this happened. So a 70-year-old man who could stand up in the middle of a storm on a ship. These people were, were strong. These Amazigh. They were strong because they were mountain men from the beginning. And he says out loud, Oh Allah, if our going is pleasing to you to, simp- to push back the Christians and our intention is clean, then open the way for us and calm the storm. But if our dua, uh, if our going is based upon our nafs, and is not pleasing to you, then let us turn back. For, don't let us go. Make it impossible for us to go. He's at that moment, right at the moment, while they're all watching him, the storm stops. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will do this to strengthen the faith and the trust of the people for their king. And likewise, why do karamats happen to the shiyukh? Allah is telling you, follow this shaykh. He's leading to you what is good. Follow him. So it puts in your heart a complete trust in your sheikh. And that's why his soldiers were just like, like unified behind their sheikh, the, behind their leader. He was their sheikh and their king. Now, that, he then has the first, first wave into Andalus. He's back home. His son had died. He's managing matters. He's forget Andalus. He then gets the fatwa from Al-Baji, from others. And this time he goes to Gibraltar. Jibra, uh, and the first man there, who's almost like he runs the little island or the little city where the, the boats have to port, uh, take port, right? The, the port city. He gets there, and that man, he sees like, oh, there's an opportunity. I'm not going to let them through. I'm going to charge them, right? I'm going to charge them, and I'm going to put conditions and blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't let them through. And he's a Muslim. He got a fa- so this is a problem. So Yusuf and Tashfin said, "What do I do? He's not letting me in." Another fatwa. Anyone who is stopping you from conquering 
all of these party kings, removing them all from rule and pushing back Alfonso and making Andalus stay there. You have to stay there because the Christians are right there off of his head. So he killed him. He had him killed. He threatened him once and twice. No? All right. And that was the way that these Andalusian Muslims had become. Like a level of corruption you cannot even imagine. And he went and he had to conquer all of these kings. And the word of each one of these fake kings was not accepted. Nobody who had, in the first time around, they told him, oh, okay, well, we're with you and let's make a council. He accepted that. That was the will of Allah for him to see their true colors. He saw that they were all snakes and weasels. And so he finished them all off. Okay. Is there anything better than a clean slate? Right? Just clean. Make a, a beautiful, clean room, right? Beautiful, clean slate. No doubts in it. Doubt is a terrible thing. No human brain likes doubt. Right? If you're in doubt, you can't sleep. I don't know what to do, right? You can't have doubt about your counsel. And then he fights Alfonso VI again. And he pushes him back again. And this time with all of the Italians and the French, he pushes them back and he cleans slate and he takes now Andalus as his capital city. By this time, he's almost 85 years old. Subhanallah. Right? And... His going once and coming back has a second wisdom. It showed the entire Islamic world he has no interest in ruling Andalus for himself. Like it was not, he, because if he did, why would he come back, right? But he came back. So this time around, all the fuqaha supported him and said, give your bay'ah to this man. He became the ruler of, from Andalus all the way down to the Niger River of the lands of the Amazigh. And he died upon that. And his lineage then moved up and made their capital. They had, they had the capital in Marrakesh, in Africa, and they had a capital in Andalus. And they ruled, they ruled from there. And Yusuf ibn Tashfin received a letter from the Abbasids who were extremely nervous. Like, who is this man who is so powerful? He wrote them back a letter and he said, I have not any desire of any of this for myself, okay, I am under you. So for that period of time, the West was actually under the Abbasids, in name, right? And he called himself Amir al-Muslimin wa Nasir al-Din. Uh, Amir of the Muslims, because the Khalifa is known as Amir al-Mu'minin, which is the name that was given to Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab. What was the nickname of Abu Bakr Siddiq? Khalifa to Rasulullah. Then Sayyidina Umar came and his name was Khalifa to Khalifa to Rasulullah. And Sayyidina Ali said, how many words are we going to put on this? How long is this going to continue? Amir al-Mu'mineen. So Sayyidina Ali is the first one who said, Ya Amir al-Mu'mineen. And he heard this name. Sayyidina Umar said, what, what name is this? Right? And he liked it. Okay, then what's Sayyidina Uthman going to be? Khalifa to Khalifa to Khalifa to Rasulullah. It's not going to go on like this. So Amir al-Mu'mineen, right? So Amir al-Mu'mineen, it literally means the one who gives orders to the believers or the prince of believers. Okay, so he took on that name. 
And therefore, the, the name for the Khalifa is always Amir al-Mu'mineen. So he did not take that name. He told the Abbas, it's I rule in your name. And I'm Amir al-Muslimin, a different name. And of course, the Abbasids are just like elders who are just hanging on. I don't know what they're hanging on to. <laughs> Pride. You have nothing. You don't fight. You just want everyone to rule in your name to have order. And you're not a contributor to this order in any way. All they rule, practically, is Baghdad. The city of Baghdad. Right? That's all they rule. And there's no worries there. It's not like anyone's coming to rule, to conquer Baghdad. And even when they did, they couldn't defend it. When the Mongols came many years later. So he becomes now the, the, the ruler of uh, uh, Andalus. And then we now move into the level, into the his next generation, which is when Ibn Khaldun really starts to look at why things are happening the way they're happening. Because the Murabits rule for about 100 years. They rule for about 100 years. Okay. After 100 years, they start to decay. And some people say that it was just like the, the energy that they had decayed. The next group came in and they're really different upon. They call themselves Al-Muwahideen. And they parted ways with the Maliki Madhab. And they had their own Ijtihadat. And extremism. And they're not considered from the champions of Ahl-Sunnah. Like you never hear of them as champions of Ahl-Sunnah. And they rule from the top to the bottom. And they take over for another hundred years. So Ibn Khaldun, he comes in and he's like, all right, so the party kings rule. These desert folks, these mountaineers come in, conquer in one generation. They rule. Another group of simple people come in, conquer, and they rule for 100 years. Then they collapse. So what's the pattern here? And he came up with his four-generation pattern. He says that a group of people who have tasted hardship, exist under a king and an elite who experience great luxury, right? And the luxury, in order to pay for this luxury, they have to abuse the people. So they lose the moral support of the people. The kingdom falls into chaos. When there's chaos, who's able to take over? The strongest, the roughest, the toughest. Okay, And so the strongest and the toughest and the roughest of people and those who are most hungry for change, they conquer. They take over. But though, and then their kids, are, they, they, they're raised up in, in, in um, austerity, the austerity of their parents, but they haven't exactly tasted the oppression and they've tasted a bit of victory. So they take this victory and they expand it even more. The third generation is now a full generation removed from any hardship. And they don't know any hardship. Okay? And they have no desire because they haven't tasted hardship. And they're accustomed to these, these success. So they just are like neutral. But they, they expand the wealth. There are no problems anymore. Right? They expand the wealth. They don't know what a problem is. The fourth generation... 
is a generation which is just now all they know is wealth and they just imagine that they're successful because of themselves. And now all that they want to do is prolong their enjoyment of life. They have no principles. And in order to do that, eventually, they have to oppress in order to continue their luxurious ways. And they become the oppressors now. They become the hated rulers. And that cycle continues, right? So that any, the intelligent uh, person, the intelligent person and the intelligent rulers are the ones who, who recognize the cycle and they have to break the cycle. They break the cycle by always bringing people, new people in, always bringing the poor. Who did this? The Ottomans. The Ottomans would go out and they would take the poor Christians, take their kids, and make them the new elite. So every year there would be a new elite. Every generation there would be new elite, right? So that never ossifies, aside from the sultan himself, right? The sultan's family itself, the khalifa himself. But other than that, there's always a new elite. These are called the Janissaries, right? So that's how, that's how the Ottomans try to break up the cycle themselves. Now what I realized, think about this. In Islam, we can, through the, the, the practices of the deen, you could halt the cycle by a lot of fasting, zuhud, preaching. You have to preach this stuff. Fasting, zuhud. And if you're from the elite and the rich, you forcibly do certain rituals that will affect the change on you, Right? By doing these rituals, you will change. You can't always change yourself, but you could put yourself in a position for Allah to change you. That's the way it works. You can't take a rich person and a rich kid and just find a way to give him character. No, but you, he, can do, he can do certain things that Allah and His Messenger have commanded us, and you put yourself in an arena where Allah changes you. Fasting, praying at night, following the rules of the, like the 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 uh, the boundaries of the sharia forcing yourself to follow these boundaries right avoiding these luxuries in, in, uh, engaging in zuhud right so by forcing you're doing these things you sort of put yourself in a place for that cycle to be slowed down big time like you really slow it down okay and uh al-masakin to be, uh, to befriend the poor, to be near the poor, the Prophet said to Abu Dhar, "My, uh, uh, my companion, my beloved, has given me advice to love the poor and draw near to them." All right, how do I draw near to the poor? Uh, hey, are you poor? Can we be friends? No, just go to the masjid. You'll see poor people, right? Go to the masjid. You'll see plenty of poor people. And that's how you befriend the poor. Right? Awsani Khalili. And Uhibbul Fukara and Uhibbul Fukara wa an Adnuwa Minhum. My my Khalid, my beloved, my close intimate friend has, has advised me to love the poor and to draw near to them. Because you'll start getting a different view of life. Like a luxury will be very different if you are always with the poor. Like to have a rotisserie chicken wing and a thigh and some 
rice or whatever, and then a salad in a plate that is a hot plate of food. That's a lot. That's what else do you want in life? At the end of the day, a hot plate of food like that, this is a luxury. People don't have this. But if you hang out with the Khalifa or the, the uh, kings of the Emirates, you go from one hall to a bigger hall to chandeliers that are $50,000 to rugs that can go to $100,000. And you sit down and you get sushi as an appetizer. Where you get sushi in the desert. No, now everything is everywhere, right? And the next, you go into another hall. Then you get the most amazing soup as an appetizer and then you go to a, a mountain of rice with an entire animal roasted on top of it with almonds scattered all around it okay glazed with honey and an amazing grape juice which is like an imitation of wine they're trying to imitate and you eat all this and a servant is standing over you more nuts sir okay uh, and then amazing ice cream after that go on go for, go do that for a day or two and then when you come home to your regular old little house and your old little kitchen and there's a little pot of chicken on the stove you look down on it right so you don't want to ever go into those things because if you have if you have one week of vacation a year and you go to a vacation to a beautiful place and enjoy the best of life your standard when you come back for the next 51 weeks is like wow this life stinks I want that. Well, what about the opposite? The smart person, I'm thinking to myself, vacation should be roughing it. That's what we should do for vacation. Roughing it for one week. Then when I come back, a shower is a big blessing. Like, it's all relative, right? So happiness is always relative. So why would I go and experience a great luxury, then come back and hate my life? The smart thing is to go camping, to go to a desert to go do something tough, right? And, there, and you do that stuff. You don't take a hot shower. You, 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 you go camping. There's no such thing as a hot shower. You got to cook your own food. It takes about two hours to make a fire and cook your own food. Uh, you sleep on the floor in a tent. And you do all these things. And you come back and your regular home in, in London or in New Jersey or wherever people are, it's heaven in comparison. That's the right way to do things. So that's the relativity that we're talking about, how relativity is really, um, it's the most important thing to understand is that there is no luxury or it's all relative to itself. So if you want to make yourself happy, consistently draw near to what is lesser of dunya, you will view yours as an amazing gift. Until you will reach the point of such non-stop gratitude that Allah will write you to be amongst the shakirin. Because you're in non-stop gratitude, right? When you're in non-stop gratitude, this is the beautiful thing, your soul just transforms. It reaches such a, a state of goodness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala declares to, this, to his malaika, this abd, this grateful abd, whatsoever he asks for or thinks about granted to him if he asks for anything granted to him later on if he thinks about something granted to him does not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say if you're grateful I will increase you 
So if you transform your heart, okay, into such a heart that is thankful for every moment, everything, and you never complain about your dunya, and you become somebody, over the years, you will eventually reach a point that all of your dua is given to you. And then you will reach a point in which you will not even make dua for it. You will think about it. You will find it in front of you. And then you'll reach a point. You will not even think about it. Allah will give it to you. Then you will realize, this is what I've always wanted. Like before you even make the dua. As we said in the class on on the on dhikr and the near on the nearness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Sahih Muslim, Sharh Nawawi, in which in Nawawi is contemplating the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that whoever comes to me walking, I come running. Right? Whoever comes to me one hand span, I come two hand span. Look who it is, subhanAllah Radim. The main man himself, mashallah, cometh. Do you just drove from Ohio? Allahu yeah, Akbar. MashaAllah. Did you get a haircut from last time we saw that? No, my hair's braided. Braided? Nice. We got to see that. MashaAllah. Put this gentleman's mic on, please. And Suhaib's mic on. Uh, and pull that mic up. I, didn't I tell you the guy was like a hip uh, dude? <laughs> Top to bottom. Okay. Now he's got braided hair. And, but he's got it covered, so we're going to see it eventually. Okay. Now, listen. The hadith says, you come to me a hand span, I come to you an arm's length. Whoever draws near to me, walking, I draw near to him running. Okay? So, this distance keeps getting shorter, right? Exponentially shorter, not equally shorter. Well, what happens when the distance gets shorter? Eventually, it swaps, right? It swaps. When they say the distance gets shorter, Imam Nawi means that whenever the person needs something, okay, if the person needs something, he gets it quicker. Right? Whenever he asks Allah for something, maybe it would take a year to get an answer. Now it takes a month. Until slowly, now the opposite happens. What happens if you keep coming towards something? You pass each other, right? Now it's the opposite. Before he desires a thing, Allah shows it to him. And then the desire for it develops. So Allah even answers him before he even has a desire for what it is that he wants. Uh, this is maqamat al-awliya. And that's all from, the root of it is shukr. Now, what's the problem that we have? It's a word now called victimism. Victimism has got to be the opposite of shukr. Now, there are true victims, right? But here's what one sheikh once told me, an American sheikh. Uh, I'm not going to say his name because it was in a private discussion. He said, listen, I've been around people, I counsel people. True, truly like traumatized victims never want to bring up the subject of what they're traumatized by. Like it to bring it up traumatizes them, right? That is actually the real one of the signs of true trauma. I can't speak for everybody, but that's what he said, right? But for this, for you to say I'm traumatized, and then writing full length articles for this website, a book on Oprah, on this, that, and the other. How are you traumatized if you're talking about it all day, right? Think about this. Think about this, right? So likewise, they said about the, uh, Christianity. It's like, if your beloved died on a cross, would you want to see a cross all day, right? What is this, right? You'd be the opposite. 
Like, we had a situation. There was a woman, like, she had a situation where she almost lost her kid in a certain place. Like, it's traumatizing for her, for anyone to mention that place. Right? Like, some area where she lost her kid. She almost lost her kid. It's traumatizing to mention. So, true victimization, is, true victim is, there are victims in the, in the world, but they have signs. Then you have this fake victimization. And it is a study now. Let me use my intellect that Allah gave me to find a way in which I'm a victim. Right? Let me find a way. And let me find a way in your words, in everybody's words, in everybody's actions. Let me f- try to investigate and parse through the words to find out a way in which you're not sympathetic to my victimhood. I'm not even kidding you, there's a textbook now. And part of the textbook is to discuss victimism. It's a marad. And why am I saying this? Because it seems to me, and Allah knows best, but it would seem to me, this is the exact opposite of shukr. Okay? And sabr. It's the exact opposite. It's looking for how I'm harmed rather than how I'm blessed. And even when you're harmed, yes, you'll be harmed. But the mu'min, and he does want revenge, which we could call justice, because revenge sounds a little bit from the ego, but let's just say justice. And I told you yesterday, right? If I personally had somebody attacked in my family, may Allah protect all of our families, the only real thing that I would really truly be satisfied with is to see the equal amount of pain upon that person, right? I don't want him going to jail, hanging out with his buddies, Right? Learning to be a worse criminal. General population, by the way, it's like a high school uh, cafeteria. Because I had a friend who went in. He's a convert. But in, before Islam, he went in for selling wheat. Which should really just be a ticket, a fine, community service. They're really messing with these kids. Who, an older brother, an older guy in the block said, Hey, sell this weed for me and I'll, I'll give you some of the money. These kids are mesquite, to be quite honest with you. You put the guy and you messed up his life by putting him in jail for three years. Now he's got a record. And three years is basically he went for a master's degree and to be a worse criminal. That's what he did. He went in, uh, a bumbling kid who didn't have a dad, mesquite, older guy on the block comes, hey, sell weed like me. Oh, I want to sell weed like him and have Jordans. And he's selling weed. Okay. And then he gets caught. And he goes for three years in jail. He comes out worse than he ever was. It's a business. It's the jail. It's like a jailing business. And this person is just their customer. Not even their customer. He's just like they milk these creatures. And they make them worse. And now they're in a cycle. They can never get out of jail. Miskeen. He tells me that general pop. I said, well, what, is, what was it like in jail? He's like, general population, it's uh, a, a rectangle. With two stories. It's like a big square with balconies, with a balcony. And at a certain hour of the day, with one press of the button, all the doors unlock. And then he was Puerto Rican. So he said, we hang out with ourselves. The Puerto Ricans and uh, we hang out with ourselves. The black dudes hang out over there. The white dudes hang out over there. And there's really no, like, third group, right? Anyone else has got to fit in somewhere, okay? So... He's hanging out with the Puerto Ricans. What do you guys do? Well, we give tattoos, right? We find a way. I was like, how do you make a tattoo? How do you give a tattoo in, uh, in jail? He said, oh, you take um, 
anything that you can find, any scraps, and you take a lighter and you light it up until it becomes like a, a, a liquidy coal type of thing. Then you, you use that and then you, you cut with the knife uh, the skin and then you sort of pour that black stuff, the coal, inside of the skin. So that's like a jail version of a tattoo. I was like, you guys know how to make tattoos? He's like, oh, oh, the whole world there. There's TVs, ping pong tables, right? And you just hang out all day. You just hang out. Some guys do push-ups, some guys do uh, uh, pull-ups all day. And that's what they call general population, right? So it's ridiculous uh, uh, like that this is what they do to people. But yet at the same time, if it's a real crime and that guy goes to jail, his skin never once gets punished, right? How is he really going to connect it to? Right? It's going to take a long time for him to connect the idea that my crime cost me all this time. He's just hanging out with his friends. Even if he was in a, a, a more confined thing where they only come out once so the next level up is that the door is locked on them 23 out of 24 hours a day, then they go out for, for, for one hour. Okay. Still, right? Still, it's not enough. So I, it's not like you're, you're, you don't believe that in justice. You believe in justice. Justice has to be served. But even the one who has, who has victimization, who has been victimized, there's a level where you say, enough. Allah has willed, and he does what he wills, right? This is by the will of Allah. Who is Allah? Al-Hakim. He's the wise. Therefore, every action that is not in my control, I perceive it as the will of Allah, has wisdom. It's up to me to find the wisdom. That's my job. My job is to find where is the wisdom in this. I might not find it for 15 years. I might not find it for 20 years, but I, if I think about it, I will find the wisdom, right? You will find the wisdom. And you may never find it, but you may be in it, and then someone will tell you. You know that? If that never happened, this, would have, this wonderful blessing you're in would have never happened. And sometimes the wisdom is for others. Like how many people suffered terribly? Then a law was passed, and thousands were saved after that. Right? So, this is the point of uh, a shukr to be from the shakirin uh, as opposed to, to be in a constant state of victimhood. Right? And you really like the, 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 the people who, who suffer from this are the actual real victims. Because now, like, you don't believe anybody. Like, anyone who comes with a sob story, so they cancel, all, cancel it all. It's the boy who cried wolf, wolf, which is bad. Because that's not a good quality for a Muslim to be like. Like, but now it's almost like every time I see on some uh, social media or I see on some, uh, some article of someone with a sob story, uh-oh, so one of these. <laughs> I don't want to hear you. sob stories, right? And then you, you, probably, you may be at some point dismissing one out of a hundred, right? All right, let's now turn to our WhatsApp and our Instagram Someone open up the Instagram because again my phone is not working. Okay. The slaughter standards of the Hanafis. Um, 
what are the slaughter standards of the Hanafis, that the slaughter standards in the different madhahib involve two differences, three differences. The first difference is that you have two jugular veins, you have a windpipe, and you have a throat. Every mammal has these four, right? So the madhahib differ on what needs to be cut. Okay, and I, uh, one of those things that you have to look it up. Some require all four, some require two of the four. So the different madhabs have a different criteria. That's not a problem because it doesn't take, it's not so hard to cut all four. Right. Number two, the basmala. The ahnaf, considered the basmala fard for every animal. If it's forgotten, it's meta, unacceptable, it's dead. It's like a dead end. Meta means died outside of a dhakat. The word dhakat is the correct way to slaughter. That's the what that's what that word means. Dhakat. Not like zakat, but with a then. The Malikiyah hold that the basmala is fart, number one. It can be said on a group, number two. So I'm a butcher. I'm I'll come in, I'm gonna be slaughter about a couple dozen, maybe a couple hundred animals today, right? Uh, there are some people that I'd like to slaughter too, but we're not going to get into that, right? <laughs> One of these days. So, uh, you have a knife, he's, he's, a slu- he's a butcher, he, he looks at all the animals, and says, Bismillah on all of them, right? That's permitted. And one of the recent fatawa that double per- showed how it's permitted is that if you cannot say Bismillah on every animal, uh, that example of that is hunting, right? You don't know which animal that your arrow is going to hit. If you fling an arrow into to a tree of birds, you don't know which one is going to hit. You say Bismillah on all of them. When you release your dog or your falcon that hunts for you, you you don't know who, what it's going to get. So you say Bismillah on whatever it gets. So Murabit uh, Ba he issued this, made this qiyas that if it's and not feasible to say bismillah every single time or it's likely that you could forget or get busy you're slaughtering all day and you're talking to people you're talking to your colleagues while you're slaughtering right and it could be that you forgot one but you say bismillah on everything that's number one that's the second now third thing in the Madiki method if you were to forget to say bismillah it's still valid right so al-basmalatu ma'adhikri wal-qudra this is the thing that we have in the madhab, and probably many other madhabs have it, is a phrase, ma'adhikri wal qudra, which is, it's obligatory, provided that you remember and you're able. Like, what else is ma'adhikri wal qudra? Facing the qibla, right? Or removing najasa off your clothes. Okay? It's if you remember to do it, and if you're able to do it. So, the shafi'iyah now, you know that there are some people out there, some of my colleagues, they despise the concept of give, listing all four madhabs. It's like they don't want anyone talking about their madhab except them. Fair enough. But I'm going to tell you what the Shafi'iyah said anyway. <laughs> the Shafi'iyah said that uh, the basmala is sunnah to begin with. So even more, less of a uh, issue with them. So uh, that's the other thing. So that's another difference. Now the third difference is that we are allowed to eat the food of Ahl al-Kitab, the slaughtered meats of Ahl al-Kitab. 
Who are Ahl al-Kitab? The Shafi'i have, while there, they have the, they, they hold the Basmala to be Sunnah in the first place, but they have a very stringent definition of Ahl al-Kitab. You cannot convert from paganism to Christianity, you're not treated as Ahl al-Kitab. Ahl al-Kitab from the time of the Prophet So you would have to, for example, know that these people were Christians or Jews before, from the time of the Prophet Like, for example, a good example would be, and Najashis, we know that they were Christians. Right? Yemeni Christians, Yemeni Jews. We know that they were Jews from that time. So, the Nordic people, who maybe have become Christians from paganism to Christianity in the, after the time of the Prophet then they would actually not be considered. So the Rukhsa came for the Christians and the Jews of the time of the Prophet And if you're interested more in studying that, then you can go into looking at the uh, Shafi'i Madhab about that. And the Hanbali Madhab, we just started to have Hanbali Fiqh being taught for us. So I haven't yet delved much into Hanbali Fiqh. By the way, Hanbali Fiqh is today, and Tasawuf is today, so sign up for arcview.org. And you can watch, you can get the email straight with the links to all these classes. So that's the idea that um, of the uh, the differences within the methods. There are little differences in the methods in everything we do. For example, ikhtilat, mingling of men and women. In the Hanafi school, is very strict. If you're you, the the fatwa, even from I think it was from the latter uh, great ulama of the Hanafi school in the past hundred years. Uh, Hey, right, who, who was the one that the, uh, uh, Zahid al-Kawthari, is Muhammad Zahid al-Kawthari even re- re- refreshed this fat, like, in-laws, you don't eat at the same table, you can never eat at the same table, right, with your in-laws or any, like, with, with, like, your sister-in-law, for example, because you're not mahram to each other, so you can't even see it at the same table. So the ikhtilat, what they, how the ahnaf define ikhtilat, mingling of men and women, is very strict. It's as if the rule is, if you could possibly look at them, which would lead to a look of desire and fitna, then it's forbidden. Well, so, the Malikiyah though, their prohibition for ikhtilat for them is talasumul ajsab, which is, if it's so tight that you're touching. That's ikhtilat that is muharram. Any ikhtilat mixing of genders that would lead to possibly potentially looking at each other with desire, that would be makru. But if it's in a, scenario, a setting that is where Islamic manners are observed, then it becomes permissible. And even in the Hanafi school, you're allowed to look at the face of another woman. I take this direct nas from Sheikh Nasar. As long as there's no desire. And there is some reason for it. And he mentioned that in the context of teachers and students. So, ikhtilat, uh, there's another daily matter where the madhabs differ on it. So if you grow up on a certain madhab, and then you come find another madhab, you sometimes get surprised. And then you learn their evidence without having learned your evidence. You're like, oh, we were wrong all this time. No, you weren't wrong. You have a madhab. You just didn't know the evidence of your madhab. Right? So this is why it's important to know the details of your school of thought, and that's why you got to study fiqh. All right, so uh, let's take a look at any other questions here. 252. Mm. Any comment? What do we got going from uh, Tadda? Uh, bring, bring it up to your. Yes. Uh, 
So, uh, in talking about the slaughtering of the meat, is that analogous to marriage of the people of the book, and is that contextual as well? Because I've read opinions that, in present times, given the likelihood of you know children being raised, not Muslim, that it's not permissible to marry someone from the people of the book in the United States, for example. Is I can tell you that uh, what the Madakiyas say about it is that it's makruh. It's makruh to begin with. It's only like a, only permitted on certain, as a ruhsa almost. But in a non-Islamic country where you won't have like word, uh, authority, you can easily lose the ability to raise your kids yourself. It, they said it's like very makruh. There's no such fiqhi category as very makru, but it is makru. Alright, I have a question. Yes. So I was talking to a friend yesterday. I, like, I haven't seen his brother in a really long time. Um, I think I probably knew him before I was even a Muslim, but he, his name is Islam, and he has, like, this girlfriend, and he was talking to me yesterday. We ran into each other, like, completely randomly, and I was like, bro, I was like, man, just marry her, bro. Like, don't, like, stop this girlfriend stuff is making you go crazy. Like, just marry her instead. Yeah. Um, but she's not Muslim, though. So, like, what's, where does it come with this boundary? Like, they've been together for two years or something. Okay, so it works like this. Mar- marriage of a person of the book is halal, zina is haram. The halal is to pay heavier than the haram. Even if we said makru, makru versus haram, you go with the makru. You always have to cut your losses, and you don't have to turn it, turn it into a, you don't have to turn your deficit into a profit. Decrease your deficits, right? Uh, likewise, they say that there is, uh, for example, something haram such as masturbation. Let's say, yeah, not a, it's like a disgusting topic, but if a person is about to commit zina, then that is less to release the urge right away. Let's say you you got so far that you're in a hotel room with a woman. Right, so to do that and to completely get the urge out of your system, then you can think and realize, okay, this is haram. Let me get out of here. That is, you go for that sin. It still is a masiyah, but it is less, and it's always obligatory upon us to take the lesser of two evils. So it is still sinful, but you cannot have two deficits with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala and choose the higher deficit than the lower deficit. Doesn't make any sense. So, you always look at uh, relations in that respect, in that regard. And everything that we do in the West, I'm telling you, 90% of the things we do here in the West, it's almost like we're choosing between lesser of two evils. Like, at every turn, I feel like that's what's going on here. It's always lesser of two evils. Yeah. So, for the common person who is caught between two decisions, choosing lesser of two evils, do they have to go to a scholar or... Are there going to be times where they have to make a judgment call themselves? If you have a scholar and you have teachers that you could reach by phone, you're not, we're not permitted to make a judgment call if we have a faqih that we can ask, right? We're not, it's not permitted for us. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Don't take a position you're not certain about, Right? Any position that you take with hesitation, you won't even last with it. Practically speaking, you won't last. You'll, you'll be swayed back and forth. So knowledge begets certainty. So uh, that's one of the things that we're trying to do with these WhatsApp chats. And many people from the admin team on ArcView have told me, enough with these 
arc v1, arc v2, arc v3, arc v4, one, arc v5. And I want to be less than 100 people per chat. I don't care if we go to arc v20 because that allows, yes, the administrator has to hit share and forward the announcement to 20 arc v chats. God forbid you have to click with your finger, all right? But it's for the sake that the students are able to talk to these shiuch. And part of our thing with the shiuch is, please answer the arc chats. Because we cannot go and tell people, don't make your own decisions and knowledge without giving them the alternative. You have four medhebs, an aqida teacher, and tajweed teacher in the WhatsApp chat. It's almost more valuable than the class, right? Because most people... The question that they want to ask, they need the answer right away. And it's a, if it's in the class, they don't know which class it's under. It takes knowledge to know which chapter the, the issue is written in. And that's a type of knowledge, right? It's a level of knowledge to know that if you ask me a question, I could tell you in my head which chapter we have to look in, even if I don't know the answer. But I'll know that, well, this is going to be in, in the, towards the end of the fifth book, under inheritance under recipients of inheritance, so I could pretty much, it would take me five, five minutes to go to my library and find the general vicinity of the answer, and then probably another 10 minutes to read until we find the answer. Then we take that answer and confirm it with a living teacher that we have, okay? And now I have read it, and I have a confirmation. Assalamu alaikum, ya Sheikh Fulan. This is the question. I found this text in the book. I just want to confirm that I understood it right, right? Remember always the saying of uh, Hafid Ghulam Yasin when I was studying Sahih Muslim with him. A lot of the hadith that we would cover, we maybe spend 10 minutes on the hadith, and the hadith is something like Islam has five pillars. So I would say, yeah, Shaykh, uh, how about I read the book, I'll circle the hadith I don't understand. And we could just talk about those, right? Why would we need to talk about a hadith that says Islam has five pillars? We know that, right? Everyone knows that. He says, I'm not worried about the hadiths that you don't understand. I'm worried about the ones you think you understand, right? So that you're going to gloss over a hadith and make a judgment call that you understood it. And that taught me right away, confirm your understanding. And that's why we have a living madhab. I don't care if you had all the books of the Vahiri madhab with a chain of publication and transmission. It doesn't matter because I don't trust you understood what they meant, right? And so they use terms. They use technical terms, and you may misunderstand. So you research it yourself. You then call one of your colleagues or one of your shiuch. Voicemail, assalamu alaikum. This is the question that I got. I read here from this book, this chapter, the nas, the text says, this, 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 this. I understand that to mean permissibility. Just can you confirm that? He gets it. And sometimes, many times, I have gotten, yes, you've understood correctly, but there's also this other opinion, right? There's also this other opinion. Like what? I shared with Sheikh Rami a beautiful interpretation yesterday that prophets don't sin. And that Sayyidina Adam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Nasiya wa lam najid lahu azma. This is the position of some Ashari scholars that Adam did not commit did not disobey Allah intentionally. Allah says, 
So asa means he, he went against the command. Commandments in Islam are either for obligations or discouragements. And Allah describes him as nasi, he forgot. So you could possibly go against Allah's command by what? By forgetfulness, right? By forgetfulness, you went against Allah's command. Nasiya walam najid azma, and we didn't find him to be persistent, or uh, insistent, or strong. That's all the possible meanings. So what do most mufassirin say? He was weak in following God's command. No, this tafsir said it, it makes more sense. He forgot, and we did not find intentionality in his sin. That's what azm azm means to to do something with with strength and intention. So if Allah says he forgot, then it makes sense to interpret azm as meaning not intentionally. Like we did not find him to intentionally disobey us. And that's why we forgave him, right? But nonetheless, the commandment of Allah was not observed, was broken. The prohibition was broken. The prohibition could be for karahiyah or wuju or tahrim, discouragement or prohibition. He nonetheless did not do that, so he will be sent down. The truth of it is that Sayyidina Adam when he repented, that's when Allah Ta'ala deemed of course he had deemed this in his knowledge, that's where he deemed that he knows now how to repent. And if he knows how to repent, he's ready for life in the dunya. So it was a training ground. I want to see what you're going to do when you mess up because your entire life will be mistakes and your offspring will be mistakes followed by repentance. If you know how to repent, You'll, sur- you'll survive this high to dunya. If you don't know how to repent, you won't survive this high to dunya. Secondly, when I sent that to Sheikh Rami, he replied back and he said, yes, but you should know that some of the Asha'ira interpreted the same verse about Sayyidina Adam that it's a minor sin and minor sins that do not affect their ability or their sound transmission of the message and do not affect their honor are permissible, and it's permissible to believe that they commit those minor sins. It's possible for prophets. And so I said, then what, what about Isma? What about their being sinless? He says, they're sinless in A, any sins that, that is major, persisting in minor sins, and to not be made aware of it on the spot so that they wipe it away. So that's the context of the Rasmah. Who said this? Qadir Ayyad, Imam al-Nawawi, major ulama. So that we sh- you should know the position of um, prophets committing minor sins is a permissible position in the Ashari school, but it's, it's with a context. It's not repeated. They, it never lingers with them. They're told about it right away. That they fall into that as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as a way for us to learn how to make tawbah. Uh, so that is a position the other position which to me is the favorite position is that they don't commit any sins right so and that's consistent that's with answer. the idea that actions are based on intentions right First one that the opinion you ascribe to yeah because we're only I guess rewarded according to the principles of our dean if the intention is there so that also being since he did not have the intention yeah. the forgetfulness means that it was more negligence than anything else correct it was that the command wasn't fulfilled that's an objective fact. Asa Adam Rabba. The command was not fulfilled, right? However, why wasn't it fulfilled? Out of forgetfulness, right? And for uh, a lot of people, minor sins 
the command is not fulfilled, not never out of like, okay, this is Allah's command while I'm breaking it. It's never like that for most Muslims, right? It's that, we're not saying this for prophets, but we're saying for most people. That's how their minor sins are. Many, many pious Muslims, their minor sins is just like, I was just defeated temporarily by temptation. I couldn't resist something or other, right? And that's why those minor sins do not even require repentance. Any good deed washes out a minor sin. So the Prophet said, when he talked about wudu, wudu, every time that water comes off you, the minor sin is coming out. Right, and so it's it. That's the difference between a minor and a major sin. The major sin requires repentance. Like you can't accidentally do this. That's a, really the difference between a minor and a major sin. You cannot possibly accidentally have done this. So you have to intentionally make tawbah. Right now, you're, you're you're sitting there and and being pious, and then all of a sudden, a half naked woman walks by, and all of a sudden, you look up. What's the price of gas over there? Uh, right, so you like ensure that she's in your peripheral vision because you got curious. I want to see what she looks like, make sure that I'm not missing out on anything. Okay, now I'm not missing out on anything. So, uh, now I'll go back to lowering my gaze, right? And that's like a major sin where you never like it's not a chance where, okay, this is a prohibition. Allah is saying don't do it. Well, guess what? I'm doing it. No, like theft is like that. You cannot possibly accidentally steal, right? Your nervous system will tell you, stop, I'm getting sweaty here because I'm stealing. Uh, you'll feel nervous the whole day because you stole You have the, until you become a, a seasoned criminal. The seasoned criminal feels good about it, right? He's, he's reversed his fitra. So that's the difference between a minor sin and a major sin. Random user says, I got friends I'm slowly distancing from because they speak increasingly behind people's back. If I correct them, they won't do anything. I'm obligated to step away and say something. Or is distancing good enough? If you can say something, good for you. If you feel that you can't because they're all older, they'll just, it'll be a problem. If you forbid the wrong, then distancing yourself is the fart. That's your obligation. But uh, distancing yourself is your obligation. Saying something is really up to whether or not you feel that there is a benefit in that. Yes. Uh, by the way, his mic is on, right? Yeah. Okay. I just want to say as I head out that uh, you're firing yourself for the tech. I fired reasons. myself, and this, and this man is, is hired. I agree with that. Just yeah. don't fire yourself as far as the scholarship is concerned. Yeah. <laughs> All right, my man. Great to see you. Uh, are we ever going to have a muntip, says Buck? Yes, we will eventually have a full gamut of scholarship classes online. Sayyid Muhammad Daniel, their opinion that MBA not committing any sins should be taught widely and preferred. Yes, it is. Because in a sense, if you say to people they can commit minor sins, but with all these conditions, as soon as you start listing conditions, you've scrambled the brain of like a kid or somebody. Uh, boy, this is too much. Do they sin or not, right? Because you always got to think of your listeners, right? If your listeners... And I'm not saying these listeners. These are adults. They should, as we said earlier, the common Muslim does not mean he's dumb. Just not, he's not legally trained. That's it. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, right? I'm not dumb. I can assess a good argument. I can assess evidence. I could probably, if you ask me to research a good lawyer for you, I could research a good lawyer. But I'm not a lawyer. So I can't answer certain questions. And I can't bring my own judgment. So common Muslims, I'm me, he's just not legally trained. Doesn't mean he's an idiot. 
But for kids and people who just, who are not even that uh, aware of how to bifurcate things in their mind, you got to give them a binary. And you got to go with the safest position. And the safest position is to say that prophets do not commit sins and anything that they've done was either a forgetfulness, out of forgetfulness, or they did something good when they could have said something better. That's it. Or they did something halal and they could have done something better. For example, when people say, oh, how do you explain Abbas Allah? He frowns. It's like, what? where in the book is it not lawful to frown? Right? Show me where in Islamic law is frowning a sin. It's never a sin. He didn't even make a face. He just did not have a smile on. That is, there's nothing sinful about that. Right? So... What's the difference between Yeshua and Isa? Joshua and Jesus. That's the difference. Yeshua, you find that amongst the Arab Christians. And that's Joshua. And it's also, we pronounce that as Yusha. Right? In Arabic, it's Yusha. In Arabic and Hebrew, the sheen and seen are oftentimes switched. So we say Musa, they say Moshe. Right? Uh, so, uh, Yusha bin Nun, and they the, and the Arab Christians will say Yeshua, so uh, which is closer to the Hebrew. Did you hear? Says Moab, they're trying to make an income-based price now for Hajj for Westerners. Is that fair? People will definitely try to cheat that system. Nothing that comes out of that operation really should be. Um, uh, trusted in terms of competence unless they prove themselves for a year or two because that system they're trying to make an income based system so if you if I make a million dollars my hedge costs ten thousand dollars if I make a hundred thousand dollars my hedge costs uh, what twenty five hundred dollars who knows what it sounds fair in theory but having seen their execution of things it's questionable what are we going to do? You know how, how are they going to know? Oh, guess what they're going to do? They'll hire a Western company to verify income and then throw that bill onto us, right? That's what they'll do. So they'll, they'll transfer that cost onto us. Yeah, it's a nice system, but who knows about anything of their execution they really need to execute because the rollout last year, it was a terrible disaster. It gave us a lot of good content to, 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 to hate on them and kick them around uh, and all that stuff. And, you know, we're not a, always favorable to those people in the first place. The Saudi people in general, I like, right? I've never met a Saudi guy, except he was, like, extremely polite, right? And even all that they say about the youth are going astray, even their youth that are, you know, like, somewhat going astray, or somewhat whatever, I would say that they're still way more polite. I have never met a Saudi youth who I thought to myself, how terrible this creature is. I could tell you that about a ton of American youth, right? Um, I have a really high opinion of the general person, the general Saudi person. I have a very high opinion of them, from my experience. I, and I used to, we used to, my parents, my family used to landlord, have, have properties, the best customers are 
in terms of paying, not in terms of taking care of the building, were Saudi students. And Saudi has deals with all these universities. They have these deals where they'll pay the full tuition right on the spot. You accept our students. So, of course, all these poor little univers odd universities, University of Portland, New Haven College, all these little odd universities, they love these Saudi students. They pay straight tuition, right? And they tend to be decent students. They don't cause trouble. And these guys, they get a stipend from the, the government. Absurd stipends, right? $5,000 a month for a student and full ride of tuition. So when you get five of them together, uh, you charge them rent. They're all only putting a, a portion of the rent of, of their... So you get them rent. You fill the house up. These guys don't know prices. They don't look up prices. This is heaven. We're charging you double, right? They could care less. Not their money, number one. And number two, they don't look up prices. They're not going to negotiate with you, right? So you get like seven of these guys... You charge them a thousand bucks each, and you're getting like 1.5 the rent that you should have gotten. No, way more than that, right? So, but the terrible thing is they do not know how to take care of a house. And one of these times we went to inspect the house, this is years ago. I get to the basement, three inches of water. The whole basement, the rug is gone. The walls are now fungus is building up in the walls. Mold, I mean. Yeah, why didn't you say anything? Well, and he looks at my dad. We didn't want to bother you. We know it's two hours from New Jersey, three hours. You didn't want to bother us, right? SubhanAllah. You don't know how to take care of a house? SubhanAllah. So, yeah, they don't know what water damage is because you guys don't have water in your country, right? <laughs> you don't know how bad water damage is. because it, So you need a sandstorm, right? <laughs> In order to give us a call, subhanAllah. They also don't know what front yards are. Smoke, flick the cigarette right on the grass. Never cut the grass. Like, they don't know certain things. They don't know that you can't do this, right? This is the grass. They don't know. We had to train them how to be an American, right? You, you hire someone to mow the lawn, that's on you. You don't flick cigarettes in this country. It's not like your country here. Flicking cigarettes. We had the railings on the side smoking putting the cigarette out on the railing what is wrong with you because in his country he may have like a metal balcony and metal is stronger right so he just puts the cigarette out on the metal and flicks it off the wind off the balcony and there's sand everywhere and they're going to be blown in the wind and it'll be gone right so we had to and, and none of this was with a bad intention none of it was with a bad intention it's just that's how they live they don't know speed limits. I got calls. Hey, your tenants, speeding. I go, I get there. I see a guy. What's up with him? He saved up his, the money that he gets from the government. He's a smart kid. He saved it up and got himself a Mustang. This guy's zipping in the, and I'm like, listen, you can f- drive fast on a highway. That's between you and the cops, right? But you can't do that here. If you hit somebody, you're going to spend your life in jail for negligent driving. So they don't know a lot of these things, but I get there, immediately you're going to be served dates, coffee, bukhur. Such amazing akhlaq and adab that you go there fuming, driving up there, and smoke is coming out of your ears from what's happening. You get there, you see the nicest people, right? And then you calm down, and then you just have to teach them, 
right? Uh, our ways of living here. So I love those people, to be quite honest with you, those Shabab and those general Saudi guys, I've never found them that they're, they're really rude, despite that, of course, what the government does and all that stuff, um, it just makes your head burst from the corruption that's going on of the deen over there and from the incompetence and sometimes what is perceived to be arrogance from them. We hardly took any questions from you today. Okay. Uh, so we're sorry about that. Can you explain the concept of tawassul, says Qamar? Yes, the concept of tawassul is that when you come to do ibadah and make dua, when you come to make dua, you must bring something forth. What is the reason that why should Allah accept your dua? You can give reasons. I did ibad. I gave sadaqah. I did. I was good to my parents. I did this, that, and the other. Uh, that is tawassul. I love the good. Right. And you put something forth. That's tawassul. Or you need something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and you see there's the masjid is asking for help. So I'm going to volunteer, hoping that if I volunteer, then Allah will accept me, my prayers. That's the concept of tawassul. It's everything has a means. That's a concept. And as Ryan says here, we have a, an episode on it. My parents don't want me to go to a ma'ulid. Should I go or not? It depends how old you are. If you're an adult man and you pay for your own way in life, then you may go. Um, but don't rub it in their face and bother them with it. But if you are... Uh, a, a dependent, you you are bound to make sure that you obey your parents. You don't like it, go pay your own way in life. That's how simple it works. Very objective. Okay. What is all that drilling? You'll see in a little bit. In a few days and weeks, maybe a month or so, uh, how our building looks. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to stop here. Very unfortunately, but we have to stop here. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr illa alladhina amanu wa amilu s-salihat wa tawassaw bil-haqq wa tawassaw bis-sabr one final question from Zalli if you don't enjoy doing dhikr and you have to force yourself does that mean something is wrong with your heart no inshallah something not wrong with your heart but there are some sins blocking blocking it Right, if you're not jumping quickly, moving quickly with energy to obedience and to good deeds and to the remembrance of Allah, that just means that there's some sins there. So you have to force yourself and scrub, 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 scrub those sins away with dhikr and ibadah until those sins get scrubbed away. Then one day you'll see sunlight. You're scrubbing, right? And then one day the light will come through. And the form of that or the sign of that is the enjoyment of the dhikr itself. So keep going. Keep uh, pushing forward, and it'll happen for you one day. Jazakumullah khairan, everyone. Don't forget that it is the night of Friday. Dua is answered on this night. Set your alarms for tahajjud from now, so you can get up and ask Allah your needs and your desires and your wants and your fears, and Allah Ta'ala will grant it to you. Bi-idhnillahi ta'ala, bi-karamihi, wa-ridwanihi, wa-salamu alaykum.